Welcome in. We're glad you're joining us for the latest edition of the Delaware Biblecast, a podcast ministry from Delaware Bible Church. I'm Brad Harris. I'm blessed to serve as pastor of administration and outreach here at Delaware Bible Church. And I'm blessed to serve most weeks as your podcast host. And I'm blessed to continue to be able to come to you and share our series of modern cults and world religions. This is going to be our third podcast of many to come, focusing on modern cults and world religions. And today we're going to focus the majority of our time looking at the doctrines that Mormons believe. Now, if you followed this podcast series so far, in the first podcast we introduced what cults and false religions are, and we spent some time discerning some main points of how we can identify them. Last week we began by focusing on just some of the main points of what Mormons believe, looking at their uh, place in culture and in history, and we studied their history and their founding and foundations. Today we're going to focus the majority of our time, though, on the doctrines that they believe, and as well, in another podcast, it's going to be a shorter one that's going to be released right after this one, we're going to focus on, okay, if I meet a Mormon, if I talk to one, how do I share my faith with them? What do I say? What don't I say? What are some points that I can look at and share? Now, when it comes to what do we say and what do we don't say, I do want to say up front here that I think we need to be careful about using the term cult with those who are members of that religion. Let me share a little story with you. I uh, had a friend that I graduated high school with, and he started dating a girl who was Catholic. And I remember going to Bible college and learning more about Catholicism, the religion. And I remember coming home and saying to my friend, very boldly and brashly, probably at the age of 19 years old, the Catholic Church is the biggest cult in America. Now, unbeknownst to me, this was probably seven to eight years after I ever said that. That friend relayed this to his then-girlfriend. When I met this then-girlfriend, she brought that up to me at dinner, and I was left speechless at the time. Something that I shared those years ago, which I would point to and say they are a false religion today because they preach a false gospel, was something that got me in trouble all these years later, and so we want to be careful then. Now, good news with that story, I was actually able to lead that couple in premarital counseling. I was able to officiate their wedding to the glory of God. And uh, as we were able to work that, I was able to give clear presentations of the gospel. And we were able to clearly share that at their wedding as well. And God's plan and design for marriage. But as we look at these things and as we study them, we want to be careful. We want our words, as we talked about here a couple weeks ago, to be seasoned with salt And we want the truth of God's word to be the thing that has the impact, not the dogmatic proclamations that we may make on our own. So I'm often trying to find myself calling these other religions false religions because I think that has more impact as well as they preach a false gospel. And that's what we should be focusing on. What is the truth? or the non-truth of the doctrine that they are espousing. 
So as we begin our time, let's look at some highlights from our time last week. And these are very brief, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that last podcast about the Mormon Church to find out the full version of the things that we talked about here, if you haven't already. We first talked about the Mormon Church being one of the largest and wealthiest false gospel preaching religions in the world. Mormons as well, more so than probably every other false religion that we will study, push their congregants to be excellent in whatever they do. They have more people on the who's who in America list for their religion than any other group. When it comes to tithing, their members tithe at least 10% to be in good standing with the church. And as well, if they have a business, they tithe 10% of those profits as well. Now, Joseph Smith was the founder of this faith, and he founded the faith after praying and receiving revelation from God and from Jesus. Jesus, it said, told Joseph not to join any established church after he had prayed asking about that. But after that happened, as Joseph continued to study and think and pray, three years after this, an angel named Moroni, where the name Mormon comes from, revealed to Joseph that there was a book written on golden plates that contained the fullness of the everlasting gospel in it. Now Joseph later received those plates and interpreted them, and this became the foundation for the Mormon faith, and it's where we would say the Book of Mormon comes from. Now as well, we talked about how the Book of Mormon, the plates that uh, came that Joseph Smith gave the interpretation of, how after that interpretation was put on paper, that they were gone. The, uh, they were sent up into heaven or, or another place, and they are not available for us today. And we talked about the contrast of that in comparison with what we find in our Bibles, where when you study textual criticism, when you study the doctrines of the Bible, you will see that we have throughout the ages, over years and years and years, found more manuscripts of God's Word than any other book of that time. And while we have evidence after evidence after evidence of these historical writings, the Mormons don't have any. They hold simply to what Joseph Smith wrote. And as we study the history of Joseph Smith, we find that it is one that is littered with drama, including likely 33 wives, drama unfolding in many of the cities that he went to, and as well his life ending after a mob stormed the jail that he was imprisoned in, after destroying a printing press that was speaking poorly of him and his religion. Joseph was shot and killed in that jail during a blazing gun battle, where as well he got a few shots off. So when you talk to Mormons about the history of Joseph Smith, they are very often ones that focus on the revelation that God gave him and not on his personal life. Now, as we study this cult, as we work through the doctrines of it, I want to remind you of a couple different things. First of all, there are going to be parts of the doctrines and theology that we study that you can poke holes through, and that's going to be true of all the false religions that we study. 
there's going to be things that we just aren't going to be able to fully understand. And I would say that that's bound to happen when you have one fallible man saying that he has received a special revelation that isn't verifiable, and that is against God's word. Secondly, though, as we look at these doctrines, we're going to do so at a quicker pace. This is a survey of a large religion, and I understand that in a normal podcast, I've got between 40 to 50 minutes to get through information that you may be listening to as you're working on something, as you're driving, and so you may be listening to it in chunks as well. So I want to do my best to be engaging, but also to go through a lot of information. So we're going to work through it quickly, but Lord willing, accurately. And as well, along with that, if I don't have an answer to a question that's asked, I will do my best to do some research and to have an answer for you in a following podcast, and I'll make sure to note that. I've shared with the folks that are taking this as a Sunday school class as well, that if they have a question, I would be glad to answer that here in the podcast, and as well, I'll likely bring up some things that they shared about in class as well. With all those things said, let's begin by looking at the Mormon faith and the Mormon belief system. And we first see that they believe in what they call the restored church. Mormons believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we'll call it the LDS Church, is the one true church. That all other churches are corrupt in God's sight. They believe that with the death of the apostles, proper church organization and continual revelation from God's appointed representatives have been lost. The true gospel in its completeness had been lost, but these lost elements were restored by the prophet Joseph Smith. So, that being said, when they were to, if they were to look at a church such as Delaware Bible Church, They would look at, as we'll see in a little bit, that we are honest, people that carefully say that we love the Lord, that we care about doctrines of the faith, but yet we are in doctrinal error because we don't have the knowledge that the true church has. We'll get back to that here in a little bit. But of the Mormon beliefs, one thing that they are incredibly strong on is their focus on the temple. The Mormon church operates a total of 170 temples around the globe. And to Mormons, temples are the most sacred spaces in the world. They believe that in the temple, heaven and earth meet there. And they trace their temple worship back from the Old Testament. I want to share with you from the churchofjesuschrist.org what they say about the temple. They say, quote, The temple is a sacred place where we can draw closer to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. In the temple, we are taught important truths, participate in priesthood ordinances, sacred ceremonies, and make covenants, sacred promises with God that prepare us to return to His presence. We can receive temple ordinances for ourselves as well as for our ancestors. For example, youth can participate in baptisms in behalf of their ancestors and others who didn't have the chance to be baptized by proper authority when they were alive. For adults, 
Temple ordinances include the endowment and sealings, such as temple marriage. So, looking at what they said about the true church, Mormons believe that, and we'll talk a lot more about this here in a little bit, but they believe that a person who has not been exposed to the Mormon faith can still go to heaven, and they can still work themselves up to a higher level of heaven. And one of the ways that that can be done is by a youth or by a person baptizing them in their death. So let's imagine that I had a child that I continued to preach and teach at Delaware Bible Church, and that child became a Mormon. That Mormon, after I passed, would believe that they could help me attain a higher godlike status and a higher heaven by doing a ritual of baptizing me in my death. Continuing on from the same website where they talk about baptism and confirmation of our ancestors. They say, quote, Baptism and confirmation are essential to the salvation of every accountable person who has lived on earth. However, many people have died without having the opportunity of hearing the gospel or receiving these ordinances. Through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, a way has been prepared for everyone to receive these blessings. In temples, worthy members of the church can perform baptisms in behalf of those who have died. In the spirit world, the gospel is preached, and those who hear it can choose to accept it in the ordinances performed in their behalf. Then they talk about endowments. And they say the word endowment means gift, and the temple endowment is a gift of God whereby he gives special blessings to you, including, quote, power from on high. And they're quoting that from Doctrine and Covenants 95.8. When you join the church, you receive two ordinances, baptism and confirmation. The temple endowment it also received in two parts. First, you receive the initiatory ordinance, where you are symbolically and modestly, quote, washed clean and receive special blessings regarding your divine heritage and eternal potential. In the second part, you receive the remainder of your endowment as you learn more about the plan of salvation, including the creation, our purpose on earth, and the mission and atonement of Jesus Christ. During the endowment, we make solemn promises to obey God, follow Jesus Christ, and be morally chaste and help build the kingdom of God. If we keep our covenants, we have the promise of receiving all of God's eternal blessings. Finally, then, they talk about sealings. And this is going to be the one that I would say probably most people are aware of. Now, Mormons say that families are central to God's plan for our happiness. Uniting families forever is the crowning blessing available in the temple, although the sealing of authority of the priesthood. The same authority Jesus told his apostles about, see Matthew 16, 19. Temple sealings enable husbands and wives and their children and parents to be together forever through faithfulness to their covenants. So Mormons believe that if you are married in a temple, that that marriage then is an eternal marriage, which is different than what we would believe as Protestant Christians. We believe that marriages are temporary here on earth. And although you may be able to know your spouse and worship with them forever in heaven, you are not joined to them in the same union that you are on the earth. That's different from what the Mormons believe.
Now, when it comes to temple weddings, Mormons say that only faithful members of the Mormon church are allowed to attend a wedding at the temple. All guests must have a temple recommended issued by their bishop to enter. Now, that status is given by their bishop, but a temple president or clergy member called a sealer will officiate the wedding. And that, again, seals that marriage for eternity. Now, let's say that you were a Mormon and you had several members of your family that were Mormons, but several members that were not. The Mormon wedding that you would have at the temple would only be able to be observed by temple-recommended folks. A non-temple wedding, though, is open to anyone. A local bishop at any Mormon church can officiate that wedding, and those who go this route or have a civil ceremony may have a temple wedding later, They just need to have a couple of witnesses there. And so that's something that you often see as well. Now, moving to the books that Mormons hold to, they believe in multiple inspired writings, which is different from our belief that the Bible alone is the book, the sacred writing that we hold our faith to. In the eighth article of faith, in the Mormon faith, It affirms, quote, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. They believe because of poor transmission, large portions of the Bible have been lost through the centuries. The portions that have survived have become corrupted because of what they call faulty transmission. That is where we shared that the apostles We're no longer passing the word of God down from God as they died out and new apostles did not overtake those positions. That changed when Joseph Smith received this special revelation from God. And Mormons acknowledge that the original manuscripts that were penned by biblical authors were the word of God. But what passes today as the Bible to them is corrupt. Apostle Orson Pratt of the Mormon faith and the writing divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon states this, Who in his right mind could for one moment suppose the Bible in its present form could be a perfect guide? Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution? And so as you're talking to Mormons about their faith, if you can get them to speak on the level of scola scriptura, of scripture alone, And if you were to be able to hold your Bible out to them, and they would affirm that it is truly the word of God that is without error, that is a major milestone, a major turning there from what they believe. They believe that your church and that your Bible is an error, and often they believe that you're just not enlightened. It's no fault of yours, but that's the reality that you live in. And so the Mormon church then holds to four standard works as authoritative and inspired. The first is the Bible, and most Mormons are in the KJV-only camp, and that's the Bible that they hold to. The second is the Book of Mormon. The third is Doctrine and Covenants. And the fourth is the Pearl of Great Price. Now let's look at these. Now the Bible is typically used by the Mormons in the King James Version, But I find very interestingly that Joseph Smith actually authored a version of the Bible that the Mormons don't hold to the entire version of as their standard version that they use. His Bible was called the Inspired Version, 
And to come up with this Bible, Joseph didn't study and consult with the original languages that the Bible was written in. But instead, Joseph added and subtracted from the King James based on what he would call, quote, divine inspiration. Joseph even added passages to the Bible, such as what we find in Genesis 50, where he predicted his own coming. He says there, quote, that seer will I bless, and his name shall be called Joseph. Next, we see the Doctrine and Covenants. And the Doctrine and Covenants is a collection of divine revelations and inspired declarations given for the establishment and regulation of the kingdom of God on the earth in the last days. Now, although most of these sections are directed towards members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the messages, warnings, and exhortations are for the benefit of all mankind and contain an invitation to all people everywhere who listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to them for their temporal well-being and their everlasting salvation. That text I just read came from the introduction to that book. So they believe that it is a gift to the Mormon church, that it helps them, basically, I would say, as their handbook, but that the practices and principles there that you find are applicable to any person today as well. I like to think of the Doctrine and Covenant serving basically as the handbook for the Mormon faith, and they receive instructions from this book, such as how to abstain from harmful substances. They are told there not to drink of any kind of alcohol, not to drink any hot drinks other than herbal teas, not to drink coffee or any types of these teas that have caffeine in them. Additionally there, as they study there, they see God's plan for sexuality and to abstain from it until the marriage bed. They see uh, not to drink, to smoke, uh, not to gamble and to do certain things in this way. And so they see the good moral principles of the church. Next we see the Book of Mormon. And this is considered to be God's uncorrupted revelation to humankind. It chronicles the spiritual events that God's people need to know that aren't in the Bible. And this book accounts for God's dealings with what they would call the original inhabitants of the American continent from around 2247 BC to AD 431. The Book of Mormon to them is known as another testament of the Bible. And so, at the same equal playing field for the Mormon faith, there is the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon. Finally, there is the Pearl of Great Price. Now, the Pearl of Great Price is probably the one you're going to hear the least about, but it's a very foundational book to their faith. In the Pearl of Great Price, you will find a collection of various materials related to the Mormon faith, including what we know as the Book of Moses, which they call a reinterpretation of the creation story to fit their view of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. You'll also find the Book of Abraham, which is Joseph Smith's translation of that Egyptian papyrus text. It includes Joseph's retranslation of the Book of Matthew, dictated autobiographical stories from Joseph's life, and those include divine counters, or his divine counters, and as well the articles of faith 
which, which is a heavily edited summary of the Mormon religious practices and principles that they believe. Now again, through these different texts, you can see that to the Mormons, the Bible in and of itself is not enough because it's been corrupted. To them, these other books are necessary to fill in the blanks, and so they don't hold to Scripture alone. They hold to Scripture plus these special revelations of one man. Now, when it comes to the Trinity, and when it comes in particular to God the Father and to Jesus Christ, Mormons believe much differently than us as Protestants. <coughs> Mormons teach that God the Father was once a mortal man who continually progressed to become God and exalted man, and the rest of mankind can as well become gods like him by adopting and faithfully adhering to Mormonism. They take texts such as Genesis 1, 26-27, where we see Adam being created in the image of God, and they twist this to mean that God must have had a physical body. Now, in order to do this, and in order to come to their belief system again, you cannot take the Bible at face value. There has to be some twisting that goes on. Additionally, Mormons teach that the Trinity is not three persons in one being, but rather three separate beings. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all separate, not unified, gods. These three separate beings are only the same in their common purpose and perfect attributes. Other gods exist as well. Now, interestingly, they say that just as Jesus has a father, so God the Father has a father, and so on. There is an endless succession of fathers, and there is also a heavenly wife or wives for each. The endless number of fathers and mothers goes on and on and on throughout the endless number of exalted beings or gods throughout the universe. Now, as I was researching and studying for class and for this podcast, I couldn't find where they said, here's where that stops and here's where there's the original creator. It's just a process that has continued on and on and on again. In the book, The Challenge of the Cults in New Religions, where, as I've shared in our first study, a lot of our material is going to come from for this study, they say that there is not only numerous father gods, but also a heavenly wife or wives for each. In 1853, Orson Pratt said this, Each god, through his wife or wives, raises up a numerous family of sons and daughters. As soon as each god has begotten many millions of male and female spirits, he, in connection with his sons, organizes a new world after a similar order to the one which we now inhabit, where he sends both the male and female spirits to inhabit tabernacles of flesh and bones. The inhabitants of each world are required to reverence, adore, and worship their own personal father who dwells in the heaven whom they formerly inhabited. Not unexpectedly, Mormons feel the Bible supports their belief in many gods. For example, Jesus told some Jews, quote, you are gods, in John 10, 34-35. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 5 made reference to 
quote, gods in heaven and on earth. The Mormons contend that if Jesus, and this is the chief among the apostles, he, he taught a plurality of gods. And since he did that, then, this doctrine must be true. Now, the study of polytheism is a belief and worship of more than one God. And Mormons say that they are not polytheistic in that they worship only one God, but yet they believe that many gods are true. So if you were to say to them, well, you're polytheistic, you believe you worship more than one God, they will say, no, we just worship one, but we believe in many. And as well, many of them will tell you that they believe that there could be life on other planets because there are other gods that are at the same level of our God who can live and who can function in that way. So not is the God of the universe, the one who created and sustains us, simply holy, but also other gods can be there. And one day you and I can get there as well and our ultimately heavenly resting place. Now this is again where, as you look at Mormons in society, they may vote like you, they may talk similarly to you, they may look similarly to you, and there can be many moral things that we respect about them and appreciate about them, yet they hold to a much different doctrinal structure. Now let's look at Jesus Christ. And the Mormons say that Jesus Christ was the first spirit child of God, the Father, and one of his unnamed wives, known just simply as the Heavenly Mother. And with that, he is the first and the highest of all the spirit children. God the Father and the Heavenly Mother have many other spirit children after Jesus who would have been born as humans. And Jesus is referred to by Mormons as, quote, our eldest brother. Now with that, they say that Jesus was conceived through sexual relations between the flesh and bone Heavenly Father and his daughter Mary. So get this, Mormons believe that Mary was not a virgin when she conceived Jesus. She had sexual relations with God. Jesus, though, continued to progress in obedience and devotion until he became a god. Prior to his earthly birth, Jesus was the Jehovah that we see in the Old Testament. Additionally, Lucifer, Satan in the Bible, is the spirit brother of Jesus, as Jesus has many brothers, many siblings. And just as, in some respect with that, all of us are spirit brothers and sisters of one another. I want to read to you from mormonchurch.org, which has an article, and again, you can get the notes uh, for this podcast and the slides by going to DelawareBible.org to looking for Delaware Bible Institute there on the homepage, clicking Current Classes. And there you will find PowerPoint slides and notes for everything that we work through here. But there you will find an article from MormonChurch.com where it says, Do Mormons believe Jesus and Satan are brothers? And this is a website created by Mormon Church members and so, as we look at it, we are hearing directly from the source on these things. They say, quote, Before we were born, we all lived in heaven with God, who was the creator of our spirits. Although we didn't yet have bodies, we did have our own personalities. We learned, developed talents and interests, and started becoming the persons we are. We had agency, the right to choose. 
Some of us chose well, and others didn't, just as we do today. When we reach the limits of our ability to progress there, God planned for earth to be created and for us to live away from him for a time. Now we'd gain a body, families, and the chance to find out if we could live out God's teachings when he wasn't right there with us. The plan, which he presented to us, explained we'd make mistakes, so he would send us a Redeemer who would voluntarily give up his own sinless life to atone for our sins. Jesus Christ offered to be that Redeemer. He was God's oldest son, the first spirit created, and so our oldest brother. We'd be free to make choices, but we were expected to find and to live the truth. Jesus would, quote, make up the difference, meaning he would do what we couldn't do for ourselves after we'd done all that we could. He would atone for our sins, something impossible for those who sin to do alone. So again, notice the contrast here. Mormons can get so far and then they need Jesus. It's not we can't get anywhere at all like we believe, but it's they can get so far and then they needed Jesus to come. It's this continual works-based salvation. Now, Satan disliked this plan. He tried to convince us to change it, and he suggested we'd come to the earth, give up our right to agency, and let him control every action and thought so we couldn't possibly sin. In return, however, he wanted to be exalted above God. As Isaiah said to Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus wanted God to have all the glory. This would make life on earth meaningless as a place of learning. Each of us was allowed to choose whether or not to accept God's plan. Satan was cast out of heaven, which is what Isaiah meant when he said Lucifer fell from heaven, and why Satan is known as a fallen angel. Those who rejected God's plan were also cast out and had to follow Satan for eternity. And we will see here in just a few minutes where within the Mormon faith, the worst thing that you can do is to turn your back on the true church and of the doctrine of the true church. Now, when it comes to humanity in the Mormon faith, the ultimate goal for humans in Mormonism is to obtain godhood. This is known to them as obtaining eternal life. We do not seek perfection just here on the earth. This process begins before we were born to this earth and our pre-existence as spiritual children. And what we do in our post-mortal life when we return from the spirit world following our physical death matters greatly. As they look at sin, sin is defined as wrong judgment as imperfection or inadequacy. Mormons do not hold to originally sin that we are born in our sin. Instead, children are innocent until they reach the age of accountability or the age of eight. Children are born to be innately good. And it's interesting to me as we talk about children and when does a child know that they are a sinner and truly able to recognize their need for a Savior, and to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Mormons just put a number on that, and that is the age of eight. Additionally, Jesus provided, quote, a general salvation for all people, where at the end of time our bodies would be resurrected. 
A person merits their own individual salvation by their own acts as they live in obedience to the Mormon faith. Mormons must become increasingly perfect as they work towards their salvation. And again, we see that theme of working towards your salvation. And that's one of the reasons that we see so many Mormons electing to go on Mormon missions. They want to go and do serve in their mission and to dedicate their life towards serving the Lord because that builds up not only the kingdom of God here on earth, but one day allows them to be like God, to, if they make it far enough, to be at a godlike status someday. Now, when it comes to the afterlife then, at the end of the world, people will end up in one of three kingdoms of glory. The celestial kingdom, and that's the top kingdom. The terrestrial kingdom, that's the middle kingdom. Or third, the telestial kingdom. And again, they take and isolate and twist scripture passages to make this work. It's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 40 through 42, where it says, There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. Verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 40 through 42. Now when we look at those three kingdoms, the highest one is the celestial kingdom. This is the highest level of glory that is available and is, it is inhabited by the faithful Mormons. Those who inherit the kingdom dwell in the presence of the Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. It is compared to as the glory of the Son. And that is where the faithful and good Mormons go. But you and I may be able to fit in the terrestrial kingdom. The terrestrial kingdom is reserved for non-Mormons who live good moral lives and for spiritually backslidden Mormons who did not live up to the church's expectations or requirements. Now notice here, you do not see a need for salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. You simply just have to be a Mormon who lives a good moral life, or a non-Mormon who lives a good normal life. Now this is compared to the glory of the moon. Third, though, we have the telestial kingdom. That's the lowest of the three kingdoms. And that's reserved for those who did not receive the good news of the Mormon faith. And it's compared to the glory of the stars. So an atheist could find themselves then in the telestial kingdom. A person who lives in Africa, who is at the absolute farthest, most isolated place, who never hears the truth from the one true church, then can go to the telestial kingdom. There is one final place that Mormons believe in, and that's called perdition. Now, within the doctrine of perdition, they say that there is no eternal hell in the Mormon faith. The real hell, however, is a person's knowledge that they could have had a better reward for the things that they have done in their faith. Now, some people will become sons of perditions, and that this is a person who will not take care or take part in the glory of God in the afterlife. 
Instead, they're going to be cast out into utter darkness. Those who enter this state are going to be Satan and his spiritual followers, who are already cast out of heaven. And those who have received, quote, a perfect witness of the true gospel as revealed by Joseph Smith, but chose to reject it. So former Mormons who have turned from their faith and rejected it are the worst of the worst. I would be interested, based on this, to look at a man such as Adolf Hitler and see where he would fit for the Mormons. He is a man that we believe did not call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, and so he would spend eternity in hell, where Mormons believe that he could still make his way to heaven unless he was a Mormon who turned his back on the Mormon faith. With that, interestingly, there is mixed teaching as to whether or not females end up in perdition. Brigham Young, the president of the church after Joseph Smith passed, stated, quote, I doubt whether it can be found from the revelations that are given and the facts as they exist that there is a female in all the regions of heaven, as he shared in the Journal of Discourses. So ladies, I have good news for you. If you believe in the Mormon doctrines, you are headed to heaven. Just depends on which one. And also, just make sure that, just in case that isn't quite right, that you don't turn away from your faith. Now, the Latter-day Saints Church Handbook states that abortion is only acceptable in cases of rape, incest, or danger to the life of the mother. Now, non-denominational churches like us generally hold a pretty conservative view of abortion, and so they would be a little bit different than us in this case. They also believe that when the baby has been diagnosed with a severe birth defect and it would not allowed, be allowed to survive beyond birth, that that baby can be aborted without sinning as well. The use of any birth control methods and artificial con- contraception methods were previously explicitly condemned by the church, but that's not the case any longer. Other beliefs include, as we talked about, hot drinks that have caffeine in them being prohibited. But with that, and I may have misspoke on this previously, and I apologize if that was the case, as I continued to study, I saw that Mormons can have soda. Soda with caffeine in it used to be previously frowned upon, but there are divisions in the Mormon church on this where some say you shouldn't have any caffeine, and some say that's okay. So just like within our faith, we may have different views on certain things, and the Mormons do as well. The issue, though, is not if they drink soda or not. The issue is their salvation, which is not secure in the Lord Jesus Christ as we read and see him in the Bible. Alcohol, tobacco, gambling, immodest dress, and piercings except for one pair of modest earrings being worn by women are also prohibited. Now last and briefly... We're going to talk about sharing God's word with Mormons. Now, this is going to be the focus of that other short podcast that's going to talk very specifically about how do I talk to people who are Mormons about my faith, and as I share, what are some key areas to address that are different between my faith and their faith. But I would say that there's five main areas to address. The first and biggest that I would focus on is special revelation. Where do we get truth from? 
We believe that it's the Bible alone. They believe it's the Bible as well as multiple other books. So I would address that with them. The second is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? And what is his importance in your faith? And along with that is the Trinity. What do they do with the Trinity? As the Bible clearly shows us there, that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are the three in one. Along with that then, focus on man's sinfulness and our depravity. Look at the sinfulness of man and the salvation that's found through Jesus Christ by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Finally, I would encourage you to talk to them about the church and their ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Now, their problem there is that they view that they are the one true church and that there are no other churches that are in doctrinal agreement with them because they haven't been enlightened to the true doctrines. This is something that you can combat them with. And you can lovingly confront them, share the truth of God's word, and you can, in a real way, talk to them about how there are many Bible-believing churches that are preaching and teaching the truth to the glory of God that's found in his word. So we will look at those in that other podcast that's going to release at the same time this one does. So you should be able to see that about talking with Mormons. And we'll focus on each of those points. I'll share many scripture references and passages with you there. I hope that this overview has been helpful, hasn't been too overwhelming for you, and has been something that you've been able to actually to learn more about your faith as you have learned more about what Mormons believe and how you can defend your faith there. As always, we appreciate you listening in. Hope that you enjoy that other podcast as well and that you have a wonderful week. God bless you and thank you for listening in.